agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, it's good to be back with you today. It is. It's great to be back with you again. We've both been on vacation since last time. Yes, yeah, and that's a first for a long time for me. So that was wonderful. I hope yours was as good as well. Oh, yeah, it was great. So, Ken, this week, as we kind of take back control of the politics guys from the, I don't know, I don't know if we can call them the older ones, but the other ones, <laughs> we take it back from, <laughs> from Mike and uh, Jay. They're the, old, they're the old Europe. They're the old Europe. We're the new Europe. <laughs> exactly. You found Rumsfeld's phrase. Okay. So this week, what New Europe is going to be covering is we're going to, uh, to be talking about the Fed's historic rate increase, inflation's new high that comes out for May. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit and get into what Jay and Mike had talked about, that old Europe, uh, when it comes to what's going to be the effect of this on oil. Uh, we're going to move forward. We're going to be talking about the primaries this week in Maine, North Dakota, Nevada, South Dakota, and more, including some crazy things happening in New Mexico. Uh, and then we're going to come, we're going to talk about the most recent revelations from the January 6th committee. We'll talk about Trump's 12-page response uh, to that. We'll also talk a look about some of the uh, hangups in the gun bill. And we're going to take a look at this week's Wednesday's executive order on the LGBTQI plus D. So, we will take just a brief moment, and we'll be back, and that's what we're going to be hitting. Okay, Ken, so this week we had some pretty shocking evidence and I, uh, that, that, that printing money endlessly can increase prices. I mean, I know it's a shock, uh, but we see this in full force this week as the data comes out at the end of last week that inflation has hit an 8.6% increase. That is the highest since 1981. That makes it the highest in the last four decades. Then this week on Wednesday, in a belated response to inflation, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates higher than expected by 0.75%. That is the first quarter rates increase in 28 years. Now, the reason potentially at least is that in terms of monetary policy, the Fed really only has two primary tools to try to get things like inflation under control. It can make money easier, right? It can, so it can lower the rates and increase the amount of money supply, or it can increase the rates and, and, and decrease the amount of the money supply. That hasn't happened the way it's supposed to have happened in, in terms for the Fed. So the hope right now is that by tightening monetary policy more rapidly, you're going to pass those higher rates on to the borrowers, make it more expensive, uh, and change that supply and demand calculus. Uh, now, Ken, what do you think yes. about what's going on in terms of inflation? Well, you know, I... Uh... <sighs> Have, I think I have a little more nuanced view of it than you, because, you know, although large deficits certainly have an inflationary effect, and I'm not going to argue with you there, um, I think they're one of the relatively smaller causes of the increase in inflation that we've seen since a couple of years ago. After all, the, the deficits have decreased each of the past few years from what they were the year before that, um, and inflation has spiked now. 
um, in a time um, where deficits are still, you know, very high by historic standards, uh, but lower than the standards of, um, you know, the, the last five years. And and I think, you know, much more of the impact of uh, why we're seeing so much inflation has to do with the the the, the twin uh, challenges of the um, the oil shock that happened because all the Western countries rightly are no longer buying uh, oil from Russia and Saudi Arabia has decided to kind of um, put the squeeze on us right at the same time. Um, so I think that's one main driver. And then uh, the other main driver would be the continuing supply chain shortages, uh, supply chain difficulties that are causing shortages in goods. So I, I think, you know, what, even if even if the deficit was zero, I think right now we'd be in a time of very high inflation, although I don't deny that the, the deficits are making it a little bit higher. What about, though, on the front, and that's kind of what I was, I was getting there a little bit, at this idea that it has nothing to do with the increased amount of, in this case, not the deficit spending, but the way in which we had spending occur, right? You're, you're putting additional money into everybody's uh, pocket, which creates an increased monetary supply of the money. At the same time as you were having one of the historically lowest long-term rates that we'd seen in a long time, one of the few areas where uh, even like, for example, uh, Mike kind of disagreed with some of Trump's policies on making that money too easy. So while the deficit is a piece of it, what about those pieces? Well, I don't think there is such an increased monetary supply compared to other recent years. So, I mean, the increase in the monetary supply um, uh, to some extent can be measured by the deficit. Um, now, I know there's, there's, that's really a fiscal component of it, and there's fiscal and monetary components of it. But the fiscal component of it, um, the, the, the annual deficits right now are running between one million, one, one, uh, I got to look at what units these are in. I'm looking at all the deficits. <laughs> so these are, these are uh, one, between one trillion and 1.1 trillion a year. Um, so as, as recently as 2009, 2010, 2011, they were running between 1.3 trillion and 1.5 trillion a year. And we were actually in a period of deflation then. So if you think about the, you know, the, the deficit, which is, is fiscal, as being um, the amount where we're essentially printing, printing money and our government's printing money and spending it um, uh, um, without generating it in taxes, um, the, the period that we're in right now is that we're doing about 20, 30% less of that um, than we were doing uh, a decade ago, and uh, and it never caused any inflation inflation a decade ago, and and this is in a you know enormous economy. The, the United States GDP um, is enormous, and and these deficits really are uh, relatively small compared to the overall size of GDP. So again, I, I hear you coming back to the to the deficit side. So what do you think about the Fed's monetary policy to raise the interest rates? I know that. Earlier in the year, when we had yeah. talked about this, you had seen, uh, you know, it's going to be under control. It's not going to be a big deal. And yeah. as a matter of fact, one of the arguments there was like, look, and even if in the short term inflation is high, people are going to be making as much money. It's not going to really matter. So talking to that some too as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as you recall, I, we did have that discussion. I, I had faith in the Fed's ability to raise the interest rates as needed if inflation got out of control. And I, I think that's actually what we just saw this week. So, you know, if, if you look at, you know, okay, inflation's too high right now. So the Fed just gave us a, a record high increase. Um, it's, it's a little bit early to tell. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if you're already deeming that a failure, but I'd say if you are, I'd say it's a little bit early to call that a failure. That just happened a couple days ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it probably will do something, and if it doesn't do enough, 
they'll they'll raise it again. So um, I, I think I mean I certainly would agree with you that there was a need right now to raise interest rates and. And in fact, I was only expecting them to raise it by another half point. The fact that they raised it by three quarters of a point, which, as you said, is extraordinarily high. You know, that's very strong medicine, stronger than I would have predicted would happen. But I but I, I, I think that that should probably just give everybody more faith that the Fed is willing to uh, use the tools that it has um, to balance uh, the need to bring inflation under control uh, with the need to not cause a recession. And so they're they're you know, they're they're moving forward with deliberation and carefully, but in, in the direction that's needed. Yeah, no, so in response to your your question, no, I wasn't trying to argue that the, I wasn't really trying to argue much of anything yet, um, yeah, yeah. that the Federal Reserve, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, that the Federal Reserve, you know, was too late uh, uh, to the game in, 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 in that sense, but rather maybe that it had not really, in fact, recognized what was taking place, right? So, I mean, now are we doing the, uh, the proper thing? Yes. But as you're talking about the deficit side uh, spending, and as you rightfully note on yeah, that being the kind of the fiscal side of the house, one of the other pieces I was trying to kind of get at here was to say that could it be the injection of additional funds into the, to the economy at the end of the Trump years, the beginning, uh, well, only one time with Biden um, in the way that we had direct cash payments in a combination with historically easy money uh, monetary policy that had that had hovered around, uh, well, effectively zero. Yeah, but you know we had the, both the the near zero interest rates for for a, a decade, and we actually had um, you know deficits, def, big deficits for pretty much that whole decade. They they were down a little bit in um, 2014, 2015, um, but you know they were they were very high. Uh, from the beginning of the financial crisis in in 2009, you know, up through 2013, and then they went very high again um, in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, the Trump years. So we had you know deficits um, very high for most of those years. We had interest rates zero for most of those years, and we had no um, inf- no inflation at all uh, until until we had the uh, you know the the as I say the the combination of um, the supply chain crisis caused by COVID. And the the Ukraine war and the oil boycotts and the the fiscal programs that you're talking about. So I, I just can't see. I I might be repeating myself, but I can't see how it how it's fair to blame all the inflation um, only on the on the deficits or the interest rates when those are actually the things that we've had for more than a decade. And what's new is the 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 oil shocks and the supply chain problems. No, now I mean I think one of the areas where the two of us do I mean we always have a lot of agreement here. Yeah, I mean Biden we 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 have a smaller deficit today. So again, I, I I'm not trying to suggest that there is a, a direct correlation between the fiscal deficit in a particular year and your your inflation rates, or that as you rightfully note, you have external factors here that that can be part of the explanation for why you have these ups and downs, not just the deficit. I, I, you know, just to be clear, the deficit's not my boogaboo in this one. Right. Yeah. So I think we probably do both agree because I also agree that the you know the 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 
policies that you're talking about, you know, the very low interest rates combined with the, the, the big social spending. I also agree with you that, that that does create inflationary pressure. But 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 what I'm saying is if we're looking at, you know, right now the, the inflation rates are around 8%, which are really, you know, very high. Uh, I'm just saying I probably wouldn't attribute more than more than a couple of percents of that to the to the the the, the fiscal policies. Um, you know, and I would say that the bigger pieces of that are coming from from the other the other factors. Yeah, and and it's eight points. It's eight point six. So yeah, that's uh, now now tied into this last week. Uh, Jay and and uh, Mike had talked about well on the left. There's a lot of I don't know. One of the things is always it's, it's always curious which side of the spectrum is kind of having the loudest voices. But but on the left we have a big conversation about well really the inflationary problems are part of kind of sometimes called greedflation. And on the show last week, uh, the, the host took a look and talked a little bit about, well, what could it mean in terms of oil specifically? Now, this week, Ken, you know, Biden weighed into this issue of the intersection of oil companies and gas prices and inflation in a letter he sent out on Wednesday. And he said, quote, at a time of war, refinery profit margins well above normal being uh, passed directly on the American families is not acceptable, end quote. Uh, and so it seems like one of the big tacks on the left is to say, well, a big opponent of what the two of us have been talking about here, inflation, really comes from greedy corporations or greedy oil companies. What do you say about that and that particular framing? Yeah, I think Biden's half right, not entirely right. Um, you know, the the I don't criticize the oil companies for raising the prices, which I think may be implicit in, in what Biden was saying. Um, but I think that um, under you know under ideas that are as old as Adam Smith about how a free market works, um, if you've got an excess of demand over supply, or if you've got a, a sharp sharp reduction in supply because of something like the the Russia embargo, but just as much demand as before. Um, then the price mechanism is going to uh, mean that the price is going to have to float upwards as a way of rationing that scarce supply. Um, so I, I think that, that there's, there, you know, if, if the prices didn't float upwards, we'd, we'd have shortages. So I think it's fine that the price floated upwards. But but I also think that what that means when the price floats upwards is that the seller is just making a lot more money than before. So I think Biden's absolutely right about that. So I, I don't know that I'd call it greed, but I think, you know, that where all the money's going. When the price of gas doubles, the sellers are getting twice as much. And, you know, most of that gas is coming from, from places like, like, like Texas or, or, or Canada or the North Sea in England, where it doesn't cost them any more to get it out uh, this week than it did um, a year ago or two years ago. So there, there certainly is, um, uh, you know, I think what you could call a windfall profit there. Um, and I think Biden's absolutely right about that. But I don't see what the alternative is. I mean, I think classical economics tells you, you either have that or you have shortages. Yeah, I think what oftentimes, you know, what the Biden view is kind of saying is, well, look, they're getting this kind of excessive profit. In general terms, though, if you don't have the weird structural issues, like, so for example, you're not boycotting Russian oil, uh, what this would mean is, is that these signals of higher prices are generally signs of, well, it's time to invest more money in this, right? Which then leads to an increase in production and therefore a balancing between that. So if the price comes up rapidly enough, you'll see it flow back down as a result of expanding business. But in this case, these profits aren't things where businesses necessarily want to expand because they're not even sure what that baseline is going to be. If you think back, uh, oil companies, you know, oil was trading negative value uh, during the pandemic. 
And so once, you know, what do you do with that? Well, I don't know what to invest. And you're right, it turns into profit at this point. So I guess it sounds like you kind of agree, though, that that's what else. I mean, there's not really another option when you have these external forces at at bay. Yeah, I I think there's not. I mean, I think I I don't really fault the oil companies either for, um, you know, raising their prices because there's an excess of demand over supply, um, nor do I fault them for not um, putting enormous new investment into new uh, oil production. I think they are putting some investment into things like new uh, use of fracking and shale oil to, you know, get different kinds of sources of oil. And, you know, the, the American, um, uh, you know, Intermountain West, the Dakotas and places like that are probably benefiting from that right now that that there's, you know, it beca- when, when the oil barrel price gets high enough, it becomes economic to smash up rocks to, to get oil. Um, uh, right. So I think there is a little bit of that going on. Um, certainly, um, car companies are, you know, trying as best they can to put out more hybrid cars and fully electric cars, although they've got supply chain problems in getting the computer chips to, to do that. Um, so I, I think there there is adjustment at the margins of the type that you just talked about, where businesses that can are reacting to the shifts in demand to, to meet it in different ways, either through cars that burn less less oil, um, through, through you know solar panel companies are doing well putting panels on houses and buildings and things, and 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 uh, you know different sources of oil are coming on the market. But you know when you have a sudden shift in supply or a sudden shift in demand, then in a free market system you're going to have adjustments in in price. I would also say, and I think I said this to you in an email, but I'll say it to our listeners, I still think okay. that price is ext- price is extremely low. I mean, I I uh, just um, was on. We mentioned we were both on vacation. I was on vacation in northern Michigan, about 500 miles from where I live in Cincinnati, and I do drive a, a hybrid uh, gas gas electric car. But um, you know, I put at the new price, which is like five and a quarter a gallon. You know, the highest I've probably ever paid. You know, I filled up my tank for about sixty dollars, and my wife and I were able to drive 500 miles. From northern Michigan back home to Cincinnati. Now, sixty dollars to 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 bring two people five hundred miles. You know, I, I hardly find that something to cry about. I mean, we we might have spent that much, you know, just on dinner, um, you know, at a restaurant. And you know, I think it's just a much better deal um, to get to travel that far and that kind of money. So I don't. It doesn't really seem to me like like gas prices are uh, crazy high when when you actually consider what you get for that money. Well, I mean, I think there's both truth. And you know, problematic problematics in what you're saying. I mean, on the true side, I mean, of course, it's it phenomenal. I mean, the ability of technology to like deliver us around is uh, is incredible. And you know, as you note, for your car, what kind of hybrid electric? I mean, I know you said uh, you know you have. Oh you yeah, have it's a, a Toyota uh, Camry. I, guess, I got a Toyota what brand, Camry. Like what is it? I got oh, okay. a Toyota so what, Camry. Yeah, hybrid electric, hybrid, okay. hybrid Toyota Camry. I'm always curious in people's choices on that front. But so yeah, you know, on, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, because, well, anyway, anyway, but, but the point being is, is that, so on the one hand, on the left, I want to say, well, look, you should kind of be happy that you have the particular uh, oil increase prices that you want, because nothing is going to make companies like Ford make more of those kinds of Camrys or to make more of the Lightning F-150 or the, you know, the, the, the Mustang E, then those prices moving higher. I mean, that, that's what creates a desire to have these kinds of alternatives in a market. So it's always a little, there's a piece of me that's always a little bit confused. I think, well, then why are you, now I get the what, why you do, and that comes back to what you're saying, right? You know, so $60 is a, is a, is a steal in your, for being able to go the 500 miles. 
But of course, those increased prices in oil, they end up making other things cost lots more money too. And I was laughing just a little bit. I, and I don't mean this in a terrible way, but I can't imagine my wife and I spending, you know, $60 on dinner. <laughs> Really? <laughs> you know, just, no, you know, for the two of us, you know, with my children, maybe, you know. Um, but, you know, and I think sometimes it's, it can be easy to see who gets priced in and out of those things in markets. Just just a thought there. So two thoughts there, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, well, certainly, the, yeah, I, of course, didn't mean to d- deny the idea that the the increase in uh, uh, gasoline prices is um, have, having ripple effects on all kinds of goods in the economy because goods are generally delivered through transportation mechanisms that need to burn gasoline. And so, um, you know, some can be delivered to part of their trip through freight rail and things like that, which may burn other other sources of energy. Energy, but yeah, mainly it's trucks, and so yeah, that that is causing you know that that's a, that's a shock that's causing problems. But I think you know in the in the it, I do think it's a short term problem because for one thing, hopefully the oil embargo against Russia and indeed the whole Ukraine war um, is going to end you know in some near term you know maybe maybe a half a year maybe a year but that should blow over and we should be able to start buying uh, gas from Russia again and, and another thing that that can happen is as we were talking about the the shift in what kind of cars people drive and indeed in what kind of uh, engines are put into the trucks that deliver the goods um, is that this oil shock will cause uh, um, people to switch to types of vehicles that are uh, um, not going to need to burn as much gasoline and so that that in you know, in the medium run, um, the, the, the impact of this oil shock should be diminished. Well, Ken, why don't we just pause for just a moment before we move into talking about the primaries this week? Um, so we're going to take just a brief break here at the midpoint, and then we'll be right back. And uh, Ken and I are going to be talking about this week's primaries. Okay, so Ken, this week, you know, we have all the th- kind of the, I think of it as being kind of the economic policy side. We have, we have inflation. We talked about that. But then we have the outright politics of the matter. Uh, and in this week, we have yet another batch of midterm primaries. And so this leads to all kinds of questions about, you know, what's the weight and the power of uh, the Trump endorsement? Uh, what's going on in these kinds of elections? And so we, this week, we had Maine, we had North Dakota, we had Nevada, uh, and we had South, uh, South Carolina giving their, um, having their primary, uh, uh, political primaries this week. So, what do you think about what was happening in terms of who's winning, who's losing? I mean, a few of the things um, that I seem to take a look at is, right, we, in South Carolina, we get Trump's endorsement being split, one victory, one loss. Um, what do you see as being some of the takeaways from the primaries this week? Yeah, I think they're consistent with what we've um, been seeing. Uh, you know, I, I, it looks to me like Trump uh, still has a lot of influence with Republicans, but but not enough that um, he's a kingmaker every time. You know, I think that's yeah. kind of been the story this this whole spring. And it, it, to me, it continues to be the story. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And it's weird to me because when, when you take a look at the story, you know, so if you, if you were just to open up, you know, uh, Apple News or your web browser and just kind of take a look, it, you would see, I think, you know, Vox kind of even put like Donald Trump is still winning. You know, uh, the Hill put it as, right, the, uh, the, the endorsement still has sway. And that just doesn't seem to be exactly the case. No, it seems to be, you know, if I was a Republican candidate, I'd rather have Trump's endorsement than not. I think it's a net positive for most of them in a primary, although I think it'll turn out to be a net negative for some of them in a general election. But, um, 
But I, I think it's not a it's not a make or break thing. I mean, the, Georgia was the biggest example. That's not the most recent one, but you know, with with both Kemp and uh, uh, Raffensperger um, hanging on in Georgia, I think that really broke the narrative that, that 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 it's absolutely essential to have the Trump nomination. And and even here in Ohio, where where Vance won with it, and you know, we talked about this before. Vance only mm-hmm. got about 30, 30 some odd percent of the vote, um, and you know, seventy percent of the Ohioans voted uh, for for different candidates, although. There were six of them who split the vote on each other. So I, I think that I think Trump gives gives a Republican candidate, you know, if I was going to try to, you know, just guesstimate a number, I'd say it's probably worth about 10 points, you know, to have the Trump endorsement. And uh, um, sometimes that's dispositive and sometimes it's not. Yeah. Now, what do you think about one of the ones that I took away was not so much the Trump as we've kind of and, and you rightfully pointed out, we've already talked about a lot. But the attachment to the 2020 election lie narrative, right? I mean, so for example, Nevada Republicans vote for um, uh, Adam Lagsalt, uh, who is and is a proponent for the the, the 2020 election. Or in uh, Nevada, uh, you know, um, Lombardo, uh, the former sheriff, is running for governor, uh, wins in part by questioning Biden's win in the last election. As a matter of fact, he says, uh, quote, your vote hasn't counted for decades. You haven't elected anybody. The people that are in office have been selected. You haven't had a choice, end quote. So what I kind of see is a little disappointing. I was hoping to see this shift as we got deeper into the midterms, but I, I appeared to be a little bit more pessimistic now. What about that, whether you're with Trump or not, this kind of the, the election is almost being the litmus test for some of these races. Yeah, well, you know, we've only seen primaries so far. We haven't seen the general. And so I think, um, you know, the primaries, uh, uh, you know, I think you and I probably both just agreed that um, these kind of these kind of candidates that I think both of us would prefer to see losing are, are actually, um, you know, sometimes given a, a benefit by their affiliation with Trump and, and sometimes even a benefit by their affiliation with the big lie. But that probably will uh, become a liability in the general elections. And so, I, th- I you know, I think the verdict's still out on, uh, how, you know, w- what this is all going to mean, because if, if, if some of these, um, you know, sort of mainstream or establishment Republicans are losing their primaries to um, rabid Trumpers who are um, propagating the big lie as their main campaign issue, uh, I do think a lot of those people are going to have a harder time hanging on in, in a general election uh, in a lot of closer states, right? If we're talking about Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Virginia, you know, those kind of states, I, I don't think, I don't think the, the big, the big lie candidates taking a nomination means that they're going to take a general election. Yeah. You know, and I me, mean, I, I guess in this case, I would, I want to agree with you, <laughs> <laughs> but yet I, 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 I am just not yet to the point. I, I think one of the things that uh, concerns me, and this sometimes I can be the positive spin uh, when Micah and I are on the show together, you know, he can kind of get negative on, on uh, the media side and people's ability to understand and learn things. But I think when I hear your argument, it seems, you know, what you have to hope is, is that there's still a large enough proponent of Republicans and a large enough, um, We'll, we'll call them loose connectors to the party who aren't going to also fall into that category of the election being stolen. So, I mean, obviously you think that's the direction it's headed, but I, well, 
Convince I'll, me. I want to qualify. Let me qualify it rather than convincing you. I'm, I'm only saying that about close states. You know, I actually think in the states that are definitely going to go Republican, um, I think a lot of these Trumpers who are running on the big lie are going to win in the general election. I, I do think that. Um, but yeah. I, I just think it, 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 it's only really in states that are highly contestable where you don't need there to be a lot of, of um, moderate. Republicans or Republican independents, um, you know, most most of the battleground states, um, if 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 you know, if, if even if even five to ten percent of the electorate falls into those categories, you know, re- Republican leaning independents or moderate Republicans, um, if they would vote for a Republican but not for a Trumpish big lie candidate, it, it may only take five five percent five to ten percent of the electorate in in the battleground states. For that to be outcome dispositive, but but I don't I don't I'm not making that kind of prediction everywhere. I, I agree with you that um, you know probably out there in Oklahoma where you are, um, uh, I think you know these, <laughs> these you know wh- whoever's the Republican nominee is going to win pretty much all the elections. You know no matter what kind of Republican they are, and I, and I think that's that's true in in you know many many states unfortunately. So I agree with you there. No, I have some ends into that, and yeah, 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 for sure. Now, so, I mean, that's obviously, those were some of the things that I had seen as being some of the trends. What are, do you see any other trends overall? Or or is it still, like you had said uh, at the very outset of talking about this, well, kind of still the same analysis that we've had in the past? Yeah, I mean, one primary I can't wait to see what happens is is the Wyoming House primary, because clearly most Wyoming, most Wyoming Republicans are probably going to vote against Liz Cheney. But Wyoming does allow crossover voting in primaries. And it is possible that enough uh, Democrats and independents in Wyoming will choose to vote um, a Republican primary ballot, which they're allowed to do without even changing parties, uh, that, that Liz Cheney may hang on. And I think it's also conceivable, although probably less likely, that if she loses the Republican primary, she would still run as an independent in the general. Um, but I think I th- I'll be very interested to see how that one goes. She's she's really the only candidate right now um, who's really, really uh, sta- Republican candidate running in a primary while standing in very vocal and open opposition to, to Trump. And it'll be interesting to see how that one goes. No, that's true. You said something there, and I'm not sure if this is something that we've, we were talking about political primaries, and I don't know this is something we've ever explicitly, um, you know, chatted about on the show, but you had mentioned there for Wyoming that, right, you, you don't even have to change your affiliation. There's a lot of different kinds of political primaries in Wyoming. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but they have an open, a, a pure open political primary, correct? Yeah, yeah, per open political primary. That's right. And some some okay. states have that. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say was it might just be worth kind of running through just quickly. So if you're listening and you're not quite sure what that means. So because primaries, they're elections, but they're elections for who is going to be the candidate for each party. States have a variety of different laws and rules uh, uh, that deal with this. Um, so in Wyoming, for example, you have open primaries. Uh, in here in um, in Oklahoma, we have closed political primaries. Ohio, I am blanking. What is it in Ohio, uh, Ken? Ohio actually changed. So when I when I came here and when you lived, if you I don't know if you know you didn't live on this side of the river, but uh, I lived on the other side. Lived, I was a Kentuckian. Yeah. So yes. So when you lived in this region, and when I moved to this region, 
You could only vote in your own party, but you could change your party registration at the polls. So if you showed up as a registered Democrat and you wanted and, and you wanted to vote in a Republican primary, you could, but only by changing your registration to Republican right then and there. Now, they, they, they eliminated that a few years ago. And now actually here, as in Wyoming, um, there are separate Republican or Democratic ballots but any voter can choose one of them and and vote it, and it doesn't matter whether it's in the same party that you're registered in. So as a registered Democrat, if I just simply asked for a Republican ballot on primary day, I could have one even while I remained a, a registered Democrat. But you only get one or the other here. Exactly. Okay. So that's – and again, for listeners, that's an open political primary. A closed is where – you know, in advance of the election, you are a particular party. You have to vote. I mean, I'm only going to get the ballot for the party from which I've uh, come. Now, I had forgotten about Ohio, Ken, having been semi-closed. So in a semi-closed, you know, that's exactly what you had described in which you can change, but it's a public in the, you know, you're actually changing your registration yeah. so that you can do it. There's also some states that have what are called semi-open. And in that case, you can opt to either register as a Republican or a Democrat, but if you register elsewise, then you can also pick the Republican or the Democratic ballot um, of your choice. So a Republican couldn't pick a Democrat's, but a Libertarian, you know, an Independent or a Libertarian could. The jungle primary. A few have the jungle primary where that's uh, what I was going to say. You, jungle or blanket. Okay, you tell it that. Yep. Yeah. You tell. You tell no, that. No, go one. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do that one. You do it. You do it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, where they just put all the uh, candidates on the same primary without regard to what party they're in. And then the the top couple of um, uh, vote getters in the primary run against each other in the election. So um, they might be both in the same party. You sometimes wind up with Democrat versus Democrat or Republican versus Republican in the general election if, if the number one and number two vote getters in the primary happen to be in the same party. Yeah, and that actually uh, that actually led to a Supreme Court case, I believe. Isn't that one out of Louisville where they upheld the constitutionality of uh, blanket primaries? I can't remember if it's out of Louisville. I I, I should know this, but I no no I, no no, uh, no, no, no. They're, oh, no they're, Louisiana they're, Louisiana yeah, Louisiana yeah well yeah, Louisiana yeah they've had that Louisiana is one of the states that certainly does use a jungle primary. Actually, I think California does too. But they um uh they, yeah they've they've had it for a long time. So it, it, if there was a Supreme Court case that upheld it, it's 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 a while back because this is a, a mechanism that a few states have used for a long time. Yeah, the two first ones are Oregon and Louisiana. They do it a long time. Oh, man, when do they start? This is something that if I was teaching right now, would be on the top of my head. Yeah. But <laughs> I can't. States think generally about that. do have they do have a lot of leeway to do it how they want. And you know, uh, I think Maine has ranked choice voting, and maybe a couple other states are moving towards that. So those are different systems for for counting the primary votes as well. Yes, and that's a good point. You know, here we were just talking about not the counting, but rather the mechanism by which, you know, deciding which ballots yeah. you're going to get. And, and, and again, the reason we were getting into that was what you, you were talking about, well, how might that look for, say, Liz Cheney, right? Uh, because she was in an open primary. So I kind of took us down a long rabbit hole, because but you were talking about, op- you know, you were alluding yeah. to an open yeah, primary, you. Uh, you know, if, continue. If I, if, I, if I lived in Wyoming today, and it was, it was time for me as a registered Democrat to go vote in the primary, um, I would pick up a Republican ballot and vote for Liz Cheney. I, I wouldn't bother to pick up a Democratic ballot, although I'm a Democrat. So I, th- I think, mm-hmm. you know, there may be she may she may get a little wind at her back uh, from that. So that'll be very interesting to see. Another piece of this, you know, so we talked about the lie. We talked about the primaries a little bit. One other I mean, it's not earth shattering, but it is indicative of both the election and, and some of our concerns about it 
is what has happened in New Mexico. Uh, so in New Mexico, Ken, this past week, basically we have um, a county commissioner, Coy Griffin. Uh, he is the founder, this might tell you a lot about him, he is the founder of Cowboys for Trump, and more importantly, he is convicted, or is being convicted currently, for his part in the January 6th attack. Now, why is this joker coming into the, into the news cycle this week? Well, it's because he and his commission and you, uh, have refused to certify the electoral votes that have come in inside of their area. So this has led the New Mexico Supreme Court uh, to basically say, look, the commission, you guys have got until Friday to certify the electoral count. Unfortunately, Corley has not, has not, he won't, arguing that there was a hacking and a fraud, just like there always has been going a long time back. Uh, as of our time of recording this on Friday, as a matter of fact, um, he has refused to certify the primary results, which since he has a midnight deadline today, means that he's probably not going to do it. His only response has been this, quote, why have a commission if we just get overridden by the court system, end quote. What do you think about that as a legal scholar? <laughs> well, I suppose you have a commission that is supposed to follow the law and then they won't get overridden by the court system. But uh, I, I, I think yeah, in fact, along those lines, Trey, um, I looked at the Washington Post article about this and there was one quote in there that he gave to the Washington Post that uh, really caught my eye. Uh, this guy, Coy Griffin, said to the Washington Post, I tell people. My oath is to the people I represent. I did not take an oath to the state of New Mexico or their election laws. So he's literally saying he's above the law, that he's not going to follow. He doesn't care what the election laws are or, or even doesn't owe any duty to the state of New Mexico at all. I don't know how someone gets to be an officer, even at the county level, without taking an oath to support the, the laws and the constitution of the state that they're an officer of. But he claims he didn't. Um, and I, I don't even know if he's going to get to vote at all because I is is wasn't he arrested um, for the January sixth? Wasn't he on the Capitol grounds trespassing on January sixth and was arrested for that? Yes, that's what I was saying. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he that he was in Washington when he made that last statement. Um, you know, getting his he just had he ended up having a charge of trespassing since he goes up to the building but not into the building, as I understand it, uh, and as a result, you know, gets to go back home. But is he is he there waiting for his um sent like I don't think he's in jail but is he waiting for his sentencing in DC I think he right pled. now is he oh, he pled so he's, he's he pled and he's he's been sentenced I think it's all done yeah okay I the the post said that he was in DC waiting to be sentenced but I didn't know how, maybe that could have happened already I guess um this yeah the post I think article there might have been a little bit ago. of a time lag yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, 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 my prediction of what will happen here is that the, the Supreme court of New Mexico will ultimately um, certify the election just on the grounds that um, it, it, it would have inherent authority to do that if this commission keeps uh, refusing to do it, or, or maybe that it would um, it would recognize the validity of the secretary of state's certification of the County uh, election. You know, I think if, if, if not, if, if it doesn't go that route, then probably the only other route, which seems to me to be a little less palatable, would be uh, for the um, if, if they conclude that only the county board could certify the election, then they're going to have to hold these county board members in contempt and put them in jail until they do. But I, I just feel like that's that's that seems like more more problematic to me than than the secretary of state simply claiming that she can certify the election and then the and then the yeah. court approving that. 
on two fronts there, Ken, just to be clear, I popped up Politico, and yes, today, as a matter of fact, he was sentenced to the time he'd already served, effectively, and, and, and is done. So that, that happened this afternoon. Um, so he can go back to, but, he, he is in D.C. now, but he can go back to New Mexico tonight, you're saying? Is, yes, as we speak, apparently, I guess he is yeah, on his way yeah. um, yep. to make these big votes. Uh, but you know, you, the, you, 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 you lodged it as a little bit of a funny as he was talking about, well, I didn't take an oath and both of us are thinking, well, I'm pretty sure I've been around. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Heck, even, yeah. even when you're going to be a trustee for a university, I'll never forget in, in Kentucky, you, for it, all offices, you have to agree that you have not been in a duel or a second to a duel, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm going to pull all these things and I've never been part of a duel oh. before. Um, uh, so it, it, it's really, really unlikely that, you know, that's the case. But it, it is, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about before, a little bit of what worries me on the election front to see which way that moves. Because at some level, I mean, you're you're never supposed to be unc- incumbent to your vote in this, to your voters in the sense that they are more important than the Constitution, your state's Constitution and the law, right? Like, that's what makes... A legal simp- uh, uh, that's what makes a legal rational country a legal rational country in that Weberian sense. Um, it's, and it's the very definition of the very definition of the rule of law. If we have the rule of law, we have officials who are bound to follow the law. Yes, and I think that's going to be a piece of what's going to be very. That is what made me. That's why I want you to be able to convince me that that's not the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, well, we may have uh, officials like this, but uh, but I think, you know, we still have the statewide uh, elected officials, the secretary of state, um, and we help, still have the courts. And so, yeah, I think this kind of sideshow, these kind of antics, I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of this kind of thing. But, um, you know, we can only hope it doesn't do too much damage to the democracy. Well, that's the good thing about having a interconnected federal system. Put a plug in for that, right? <laughs> to have some balances yep. on those things. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, Ken, I think we're going to need to pause here and end the ad-supported preview of the politics, guys. So uh, Ken and I, we're going to be continuing to record as this gets done. And if you would like to join us in that, you can, but you just need to become a supporter of the politics, guys. That's what makes this show possible. So if you'd like to listen to the rest of the show, there are other benefits to being a, a supporter of the show as well. So, for example, you can connect with us on Discord and other ways. So if you want to become a member, listen to the rest of the show, you can head to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. We're also on Venmo at politicsguys. So if you want to listen to the rest of the show, get a lot of great other items as well. All you got to do is head to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support.